King Jesus, we can try with uh, our songs, with our words, with our our sermons to uh, wrap our mind around who you are and what that day will be like. Uh, you've given us a such an amazing picture in, in the book of Revelation, and yet uh, we miss the point over and over. We're, we're busy talking about charts and graphs and uh, when you're going to come back and what things are going to happen first. And uh, we're, we're left in the details, and what we miss in the midst of them is this beautiful picture of all that you are and all that you're going to do. That's going to stop every tongue and it's going to bend every knee. And so as we go through uh, this book, your revelation given to us to, to reveal the beauty of who you are and what you've done and what you're doing and what you will do, God, I just pray that you would lift our eyes, that you would purify our worship and our lives in light of who you are and what, you're, what you've done and what you're going to do. I pray that every word that will pour forth out of my mouth today, every word that would be received by every ear today, would be worship unto you. And so guide us by your Holy Spirit into a revelation that you have given to us to reveal the beauty of who you are and to ignite our hearts and our lives in light of that day. This is for your glory, King Jesus, and we pray it in your name. Amen. Well, if you are not in Revelation, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation. Uh, if you have hit your maps or a bunch of words and definitions, you've gone too far. I don't have a page number for you. It's the best I can do. So Revelation chapter 1 is where we're going to be, and we're going to be uh, taking a chunk of what Chris already read for us today. I'm just going to go ahead and read that passage before we begin. Follow along with me. Uh, in your Bibles, I don't have the full text up on the screen. So if you're looking to cheat, I'm sorry. I'll give you three more seconds to turn to the back of your Bible. Two, one. Let's read. All right. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests, to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Um, Beautiful text that we have today. It's... Like most epistles, it's kind of that second introduction, right? You kind of have the initial greeting and then you have that second introduction to follow up. So if you uh, are here and uh, you were here last week and you heard Chris's introduction and you thought, great, we got all that context stuff out of the way. Now we got some bulls, some seals, maybe some horns, a beast. I don't really know. It's going to get crazy because we're on week two. 
I'm sorry to disappoint you. We are uh, going to go through this introduction, and uh, while it may not be uh, the meat and potatoes of what you think of when you think Revelation, uh, church, I can promise you these verses are a beautiful table setter for what we're going to be going through. Because before we ever address any letters to the churches, before we... Ooh, we got a little breeze in here today. That's fine. I'm just going to go like that. Uh, before we address any letters to the churches, before we talk about a seal, a trumpet, a bowl, or, uh, or, or anything like that, any visions of the throne room, we have to once again set our hearts on the main theme of this book. And that theme is a person. And that person is King Jesus. And these four verses that we go through today do a beautiful job in all of its different ways. There's so many different ways in the, in the Greek and in the imagery and in the way things are laid out. All very intentional by John uh, to elevate the name of Jesus and to put him on full display. Uh, before we ever enter into the throne room vision or before we ever hear his words to the churches or see anything play out, he wants to make sure that, that we have the, the map key to understanding Revelation, which is a beautiful picture of the majesty, the glory, the awesomeness of Jesus Christ. And so these verses that we go through today are not a throwaway. They are a table setter. And we are blessed to go through them together as a body. I was blessed to study them, and I can't wait to go through them. So hopefully you're not disappointed that we're not talking about bulls or seals. That's all I want to say about that. Um, I do want to read the the first line again in in Revelation 1-4. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Again, uh, I, I could have told you all to close your eyes, and if you didn't look up at the screen, you would think that we're going through Galatians, right? You think that we're going through Colossians or a letter to the Corinthians because it starts just like any other epistle would. And uh, as Chris talked about last week, you, Revelation is such a unique book in that it is an epistle and it's also apocalyptic imagery. It's also a prophetic book. There is so much that is packed into this book that if you were to read from Matthew all the way through to Revelation, you get to this book and read it and be like, this is unlike anything that I've ever read before. And if you are like most Bible readers today who tend to major on the New Testament and minor on the Old Testament, then this is really unlike anything you've ever read before. Because this book is totally different than anything that we would read in the New Testament. And I think it's interesting, I just want to focus on that first word as kind of a sub-point, the word in our text, John. Uh, Chris already mentioned last week that, that the Bible reveals him to be in the Gospel of John as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think it's safe for us to say that John experienced while on earth uh, a level of intimacy with Jesus as he walked the earth that no other fallen man can really claim. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this unique book revealing, magnifying, glorifying the name of Jesus was given to one whose life was marked by love relationship and sweet intimacy with Jesus while he walked the earth. It should not surprise us that he was the disciple inspired by the Holy Spirit to write for us, to give us this kind of revelation. And so again, just kind of piggybacking off what Chris said last week in the intro, as we come to the book of Revelation, as we dive in, if our quest is for knowledge, 
if our quest is to have the right graph with the arrows that point up and down and there's throne and bowls and weird trumpets and all of the like, if, if our goal in coming to Revelation is to iron out those details and to come to a fuller knowledge of what this book has, I think we're going to miss it. Because that was not the heart of the one who wrote it. It was not the meaning behind the message as it was given. This was given to reveal a person, not an end time scenario. And so if we're coming with that type of mindset to figure out, oh, well, when does the rapture happen? And, and have these bulls already been dumped? And where are we at in the timeline and the process? Beloved, I just want to caution you about getting your head way out in front of your heart. The verses that we have today are to, again, to, to level set, to set the table, to really set in our focus on what this is all about. And it's about a who. And so let's take a, a, a page out of the, the life of the one who wrote this and make our goal, make our aim as a church to really run after a deeper love for Jesus and greater intimacy with Him. Because if we are going to understand this revelation at all, it's going to be because not because we're pursuing greater knowledge, but because we are pursuing greater depth and intimacy and love and fellowship with King Jesus. And it is through that that we are going to have everything that we need to understand the day that we are in and the days ahead as they have been revealed to us. And not only that, but we're going to allow a book like this to only grow our love for one another and not divide as it has through the years. Amen? Because when our eyes are set on Jesus, then we're not going to lose sight of Him amidst the details and how He has called us to be towards one another as we wrestle through some of the stuff that we tend to disagree on. So again, I just want to call that out from the get-go, just as Chris did last week, and say, this is about our pursuit of intimacy with Jesus. This is about pursuing greater love for Jesus. This is about bringing our lives before Him as He is revealed and saying, what needs to go, what can stay, what needs to increase, what needs to decrease. This is all about Him, for His honor and His glory. So let's dive in with that heart. That being said, um, we read here in the beginning, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace to you. I want to write, uh, I want to read a quote by George Eldon Ladd, who helps us understand uh, the symbolism, right? We, we've talked about how in Revelation there is so much symbolism at play here. And right in this opening line, if we were in the first century, if we were reading this as a Jewish audience, if we read that line right there, that line that just kind of makes you go, oh, okay, I know who this is to, I know who this is from, let's get on to the good stuff. If you were reading it back then, you would say, oh, I see what you're doing there. I see what you're doing there, John. And so I want to read this uh, quote from a man who's much smarter than me. He says, John chose these seven churches with which he was well acquainted so that they might be representatives of the church at large. We'll tease out what that means in a second here. John thus indicated that while his revelation was addressed in particular to seven churches known to him, It's a message that was also 
for the whole church in general. In other words, when we read that, we just think, okay, this is to seven churches. Great. All right. And it's, and that's true. This was to seven actual churches that have seven locations that you can go to, that you can, you can look at their archaeological remains. Like these, these were real places, real people. And as we'll read, uh, they had real problems. But these were not the only seven churches that existed in, existed in Asia. In fact, in this little strip of Asia Minor, there were several other churches that John was aware of and could have included, but didn't. Churches that we know of through the New Testament, and yet he didn't. And so we need to keep two things in mind as we come up on these seven letters to the churches. Yes, they were real churches. Yes, they had real people and real problems. But this is not a letter that existed with importance just or relevancy just in the first century. Because when he used that word seven, and again, we know our minds immediately go to when we hear the number seven, we think, okay, perfection, right? We think seven days of creation. Uh, but the fuller expression of that, that number can also mean fullness or completion, a part to represent the whole of something. And so if we were reading this with, uh, with, with eyes of first century Jews, we would read through that seven and say, oh, he's talking to them, but he's also talking to us. He's talking to them, but he's also talking to the church in the Dark Ages, the church in the Reformation, the church in Cicero, Indiana. He is speaking to a very specific set of people with very specific issues, but he's not talking to the perfect church, right? <laughs> he certainly doesn't mean that by seven, because as we'll read, these, these churches were anything but. But instead, he is giving that number to say, listen up, church through the ages, this message is for you to hold. This message is for you to behold. This message is for everyone, for all times, for all seasons in this church age. For the fullness of that church age, this is for you to hold. This is for you to behold. The reason why I tease that out is because we, we have heard, you have heard, I have heard people say, you know what, I'm not going to spend any time on the book of Revelation. I'm just not. You know why? I'm not one of those wackadoodles. You know, those people with the tinfoil hats who think, oh, we're in the middle of at least the, the fourth seal, and I think there's a trumpet that I saw last week, and this person's the Antichrist. They just died. I meant his brother. And this is the, we're, we're it. We're the church in the last age. Here we go. Come Lord Jesus, right? Maranatha cry. And, and we see these people and we say, ugh, I don't want to be that. I just don't. And I can acknowledge the fact that people during Hitler's lifetime probably thought, this is it, and people, right? And we can just keep going back and say, everybody has always thought we're the church of the last age. What are the odds? And so you know what? I'm going to focus more on holy living or more on evangelism. But as far as like really teasing out this, this end times prophecy of revelation and understand that, I'm not even going to get in the weeds of that. Because that's not even the age of the church that I'm in. Beloved, John makes clear from the very start with that number seven, that if you are in the church, then this message, this revelation, this book that we are called to read and to know and to hold and be blessed by, this is as much for you as it was for any set of believers through the ages. 
This message, this revelation, this elevation of King Jesus is ours to hold and to behold today. And so we are going through this book, not because we want to be a bunch of tin hat wearers, or not because we want to tear down those who have the hats on. No, we are going through it because this is our job, our responsibility, our privilege as the church of today, the same as it was for the church in every day, in every age, to know this message, to keep it before us. Amen? And so we need to do that, just as the church through the ages has done. And so all that to say, uh, we find ourselves at kind of the beginning of this book, the intro of this book. And if you've ever read verse 9 and on, you know it gets, uh, it, it picks up quite a bit from here with visions of being in the throne room and, and, and messages to the, uh, the churches, very specific direct messages uh, that we're going to read through and we're going to see a lot of us in there, in the good and the bad and the ugly. And we're going to see God doing things that, that he wants us to know and calling the church to do things that he wants us to be a part of. And so we need to understand that this is for us. That at no point can we check out and say that this doesn't apply to us. And so here at the very beginning, before we get into any of that, we come to these four verses. And these four verses are like a, a beginning of rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. In everything that we are going to see and how these verses are, are laid out for us, I mean, it is basically like, here we go. We are here to talk about, to magnify, to elevate Jesus Christ. And so that's exactly what we're going to, uh, what we're going to do today as we go through these. We read in verse 4b. Grace to you and peace from him who was and him who is and his, uh, and, but, wow, it is hard to read, to be fair. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth. Here we see that the book of Revelation is an inspired work of the triune God. Revelation, not typically a place where I go to uh, find passages that reveal the Trinity, uh, but here we have a very clear laying out of uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Or, as our text lays out, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And it's with great intention, of course, that John does that as he does everything in these verses. Um, but he does so in a way that really magnifies the beauty of, of the individual persons of the Godhead. We see uh, first God the Father being revealed. I'm not a Greek scholar. I tell you guys this all the time. I took a little bit of it, enough to be dangerous. Uh, but I'm not a Greek scholar. And so I rely on people who write really thick books to tell me what's actually going on in the Greek. And one of my thick-booked brethren uh, helped me to see that this construction of him who is, was, and is to come uh, is the same Greek idiom that's used to describe God the Father throughout Revelation. Uh, we see this in Revelation 4.8 
where it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And it's an intentional formation that's used to draw the minds of the reader back to a verse that we're all very familiar with, the first place where God revealed who he is to Moses, right? In Exodus 3, 14, uh, where we read, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so he wants to make very clear that this greeting, this message, what you're about to hear, is coming from the self-existent, eternal, unchangeable ruler of all, God the Father. And then he goes into a greeting on behalf of God the Spirit, or in this case, uh, the seven spirits who are before his throne. And uh, I think uh, I'm with just about everyone in this room when I say I don't typically refer to the Holy Spirit in this way. Is this new for anyone? Right? Okay, no one. Apparently we all go around saying, boy, the seven spirits before the throne just really moved me to talk to you and to reach out to you and see how you were doing today, you know? Oh man, the seven spirits who are around the throne really just oppressed upon my heart that I really need to just, really, come on. Not, whatever, guys. So it is a different way of speaking about God the Spirit. And again, for us today, we don't typically use this way to, uh, to speak about or to address the Holy Spirit. And yet again, if you were to read this with Old Testament eyes, uh, you would, you wouldn't be so psyched by this. Um, and so a good uh, call out as we enter into the book of Revelation. One of the reasons why people don't often want to dive into this book is because they're like, oh man, there's, there's so much symbolism. There's so many things that it says and I have no idea what they're talking about or what it means or why John chose that. Um, if you minor in the Old Testament you are going to run into major issues with the book of Revelation because so much of the symbolism is going to be drawn from uh, the Old Testament uh, apocalyptic literature. And so a lot of times if you're like, man, I don't know why we're talking about trumpets. I don't know why we're talking about horns. I don't know why we're talking about uh, this seven spirits before the throne. A lot of times if you do a little bit of Old Testament digging, you will find some Old Testament passages where it's like, oh, okay. This is the prophecy that that's referring back to. This is what John wanted us to see. This is what God was revealing what was a shadow back then, but is now screaming in reality for us today. So that's a little plug for your Old Testament. Uh, but that being said, two passages where we see this uh, calling out of the Holy Spirit is the seven spirits. One is in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, where we read, uh, There shall come forth a shoot, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots uh, shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so here we see the Holy Spirit indwelling, filling, uh, coming on to empower. And then from that, we see six specific things that he does. Now, again, why seven? Why seven? Well, that's an expression that's being used to really show us the, the fullness, the completeness of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church age. 
He wants us to know that the Holy Spirit is sending this message and, and, and the fullness of Him, the completeness of His ministry is represented in His name. And here we see a prophecy of Jesus Christ, right? The Messiah, the one who's going to come from the line of David, from, from Jesse's line. And he is going to come and he is going to be, uh, going to be covered by and, and empowered to do all of these things and more. But again, knowing that this seven represents the fullness of what Christ, or fullness of what the Holy Spirit is going to do, uh, through Jesus Christ in relationship to him. Um, another place where you could go would be Zechariah chapter four. We're not going to go there together and read through it. Uh, but it's here where the Holy Spirit is described as a seven-candled menorah. He is described in a vision as being such. And uh, a verse that we are familiar with, Zechariah 4, 6, and the conclusion of this vision is, uh, speaking of the Holy Spirit, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Uh, point being, again, it's just a, it's just a sub-point. Uh, it might be weird for us to hear the Holy Spirit described in this way. But again, with first century Jewish eyes with a, with a solid understanding of the Old Testament, we wouldn't be psyched by seeing this at all. There really wouldn't be any division or controversy in this because we would understand, oh, he is talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the Holy Spirit in his relationship to the church, in his relationship uh, to his work in the world. Um, John then moves to a much lengthier depiction of God the Son. Jesus Christ. And again, I just want to draw out the, uh, the way in which we're talking about this, right? God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. We don't oftentimes uh, see the Godhead laid out in this way. But again, what is John trying to do? How is he setting the table for our approach to this book? He puts Jesus last to make him first, to magnify him and his position and what he is doing as the the full expression of God the Father, fully empowered by the Holy Spirit, here to fulfill uh, this plan that is going to be laid out in great detail for us. All of this calls us back to Jesus. All of this is made to turn our eyes to Jesus. And so let's see how uh, John lays out this description of Jesus. He says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Lost my place. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever. Amen. And so here we see John um, beautifully laying out Jesus' role as prophet, priest, and king. All right, we see him as the, the faithful witness, right? How many times have you read through the Gospel of John, uh, does Jesus reveal what he is all about in this world, right? I am here to do what the Father has sent me to do. The words I speak are not my words, but his words, right? I am not here to reveal, I'm here to reveal the Father over and over and over and over again. Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the one coming to proclaim to 
to magnify, to point others to his father and to carry out the work that, that his father gave him to do. That's the picture that we see of Jesus in the Gospels. And here his title as the faithful witness, a title that he's given three other times throughout the book of Revelation, uh, reveals that work that he's come to do. And uh, we see not so much in, uh, in, in, a, in a title given, but in a reference given, his work as our great high priest, who not only offered his blood to free us from our every sin, but guaranteed the sufficiency of that sacrifice by becoming the firstborn of the dead. By raising again on the third day. And he also made all of us who cry out to him in faith a kingdom of priests. Now able to enter into the Holy of Holies, right? What did his death do? Those of you who were in Sunday school today and listened to Jeremy preach my sermon for me. Every time? That's whatever. That's fine. But what did he do? On that day, right, the curtain that, that, that kept us in the holy of, or from, uh, just being in the holy place to, to going into the holy of holies, that curtain was torn in two. And we are now invited to be a kingdom of priests, able to enter into the very presence of God, boldly into his throne room, making requests, not because of who we are, but because of whose blood we are covered with. He made us into a kingdom of priests, as Paul says in, in Romans 12.1, now able to offer our lives, the whole of who we are, as a living sacrifice that is what to God? Holy and acceptable. Because of who you are? Because of who I am? No, because of who our sufficient great high priest is. We are now able, because of his blood that purifies us from our sins, to become that kingdom of priests, worshiping him, representing him, magnifying him, giving our lives as a fragrant offering to him all the days of our lives. That is what our great high priest did for us. We read about this in the book of Hebrews all that his death accomplished. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 through 15, where the author writes, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That is what our great high priest did for us. That is what his sacrifice made available to us. Hebrews goes on to... Say in chapter 10, uh, verses 19 through 23, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He's rolling out for us here, John, that what is to be revealed to us is, is we can now hold this. We can now behold this. We can now be changed by it. Not because of who we are moving forward from here, but because of who he is and what his blood made available to us. We are to be the church in every age. We are to do that which the church is called to do in every age. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he made available to us by his blood. And so before we can go any further into this revelation and understand what the things that are going to be revealed, before we can look upon Him in the throne room, before we can magnify all that He is going to do through the ages and at the end of the age, we have to stop and understand that the only way we can hold this, the only way that we can enter into this, the only way that we can benefit from this is 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 if His blood has cleansed us from our sins. And so we stop here, as we should stop here. We know that this was written to the church. We know that that word church assumes relationship. It assumes discipleship. It assumes that they have reached out by grace or reached out by faith and grabbed hold of the grace that is offered through the blood of Jesus. But we can't assume that in every age. We can't assume that in every day. And so we have to stop and ask ourselves the question, have I placed my faith in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Am I trusting in His sufficient sacrifice, His blood, His atoning work to be the thing that saves me? And don't run ahead and just say, yep, I am. Stop and consider, have you really? Have you actually placed your faith in Jesus? I'm not asking, have you heard the gospel before? I'm not asking, have you prayed a prayer before? I'm saying, look at your life and say, Am I thinking that who I am, am I thinking that what I'm doing or what I have done or what I'm going to plan to do one day, that that is what gives me access to all that is going to happen in the future because of all the things that I am doing or not doing? Beloved, if that is where you are, then you are not in a place where your sins are sufficiently covered by the blood of Jesus because you are trusting in something outside of Jesus to be your salvation. He did this for you. He did this for me. But we can't just claim it because we read it. We have to reach out and take hold of it by faith and ask Christ to be the sufficient sacrifice for our each and every sin. Have you done that? If you haven't, I want to invite you today to do that. And if you don't know how to do that, I want to invite you to have a conversation with me, with Chris, with one of our elders. Uh, email at harborshores.org. We'll set up a coffee date. We'll set up a, a face-to-face. Just let's take care of that. Because as we read on, what these verses set us up for can be something that is going to lead to to the praise and shouts of acclamation or weeping and wailing as we consider our coming King.
And as we read here in um, the very end of the verse, in um, verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Here we see uh, Jesus being revealed as our coming King. And uh, it would be easy for us to look at these verses and uh, to say, you know, I can see his role as prophet or as faithful witness. I can see where he did that and has done that and, and continues to do that. Uh, I can see his work as great high priest. I can see his, his sacrifice and what he did and how that is sufficient and how that is carrying on to in, into eternity, his work as the sacrificial lamp. But I think sometimes we can come to his role as king and think, really? Like, he is the ruler over the kings of the earth? He is the, he is the king of kings? Like, have you guys taken a walk out there? Have you opened up your news app recently? Like, the kings of this earth, it seems like they are just ruling with an iron fist of untold evil and our world is burning or melting or uh, smoking. I, like, w- what is going on out there? And as we look at all of the, the devastation and the evil that seems to be at large and, and, and even our lawmakers that are supposed to be limiting evil as an act of God's grace on this earth seem to be just like opening up the door and laying it in. And so we look out there and we're like, man, you're, you're really the, the king, the ruler over the kings of this earth. Like you are right now reigning as king. It's hard for us when we read, uh, verses like Matthew, uh, chapter 28, 18, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Really? Or what Paul affirms in Ephesians 1, 19-23, it says, According to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised them from the dead, and did what? Seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. This happened. This has happened. And every name that is named, not only in this age right now, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's important for us to understand before this revelation unfolds that Jesus is as much king now as he will be on that day. That Jesus has as much authority today as it will be revealed that he does on that day. That he right now is the sovereign king over all. That he has placed the world under his feet. And what a beautiful revelation to be given to the church at the start of things before the proverbial everything hits the fan as we read through Revelation from the very get-go to say, hey, 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 he's king. He's king. 
and he's coming on the clouds. You know this because you've, you've read Daniel, right? I'm way ahead in my notes. I'm very sorry for you. I'm sorry. But reading out of Daniel, uh, 600 years before John ever wrote this, we read this in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I saw in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And again, we read this in Zechariah 12, 9 through 13. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. And there's a beautiful uh, way in which the, the end of this verse, and even the end of Revelation, if you look at Revelation uh, 22.13, there's a little bit of debate on that last verse. Is this God speaking? Is this God the Father? Is this Jesus speaking? Uh, at, the, at the end, it's very clear in Revelation 22 that this is Jesus speaking. Here, I, I, I would think that this should be in red letters. I think that this is very much Jesus making his claim that I am God. I am King. I am coming again. Uh, all of the, the verse is like a funnel leading us to Jesus. And so here he says at the end, I am the Alpha and the Omega, right? And I love the way this is written in the Greek. Again, this is not my observation, but the observation of one who's much smarter than me. Um, Commentator Vernon McGee, J. Vernon McGee writes, Here in the original Greek, the Omega is not spelled out as the Alpha is. So if you look in the Greek, alpha is actually spelt out phonetically or however you would say that. Uh, And why is that? It's because Christ is the beginning. And the beginning is already completed. But the end is not yet to be. So he didn't spell out the omega in this instance. One day he will complete God's program. And so when you look in the original Greek, all you see is the, the symbol for omega. And you see the exact same thing when Jesus calls himself in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is a word to the church of all time to say, I am the King and this story isn't complete yet. And so if you are looking at the world out there as your, your, your like deciding factor for the validity of what's going on in here, I'm telling you that that is opposite of what you should do. Amen. Because I am the cloud rider. I am the, wider, the rider on the white horse. I am the one who is going to come and set things right. I am the lion. I am the lamb. I am the beginning. I am the end. And if you loved my work as a prophet and you have trusted in my work as a priest, then hold on tight because I am coming again as king. Because I am king. But the work isn't over yet. 
And so as we dive into these letters to the churches, as we dive into bowls and seals and trumpets and all of that, we do so understanding that the story isn't finished. And that all of that rests not on our ability to decipher, but our ability to trust in the one who promised to finish everything. And a call for us to keep our eyes on him, regardless of what we see out there. Because we're promised in this book, deception. We're promised in this book, devastation. We are promised in this book, an end that is foggy and is going to lead to a lot of bickering out here. But the promise from the beginning is that Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, reigning now and will reign forever. And the call is for us to love him, to look to him, to keep our eyes on him now and ultimately forever. So I love how this verse concludes before we ever go up into the, into the throne room, into this beautiful vision, into the churches, into the seals and the trumpets and the bowl, and into all of that. What we are left with here, the, the, that we're given here is a call to look to the fullness of Jesus. All that he has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will And so my question to you who are here today is, are you ready for that? We've already talked about the need to set our eyes on Jesus as our sacrificial lamb, as the payment for our sins. But now I'm talking to the church. Now I'm talking to you who have that. I'm talking to me who we have that relationship with Jesus. and, And we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, Is the promise of this day that is unfolding, that we are nearer to more so today than any other day in human history, are we allowing the full weight of that day and the one who is king over it to have its rightful place in our hearts, to have its rightful place in our worship, to have its rightful place in our meditation, to have its rightful place in our decision-making? and our finances, and the things that we call our freedoms. Is this day the day with which we are living in light of? Is this promise of our coming King the very thing that decides who we are and how we live? Do we let it have that weight? Or are we more interested in the details of our day? Are we more interested in, the, in, the, in ironing out the details of this book? Because if we are, then we've missed the point. He is the point. And he points us to how we are supposed to live today in light of that day. And so I want to invite you, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, begin that today. But if you have a relationship with Jesus, then keep the beauty and the glory and the fullness of who he is and all he has promised you will come to pass in front of you each and every day. I've written in the end of your uh, outline there, uh, I don't know if I filled in any of your points, but I can promise you that there are questions there uh, that are made to lead us as a church in our worship this week. Questions that are made to align our hearts uh, as, as one body as we move forward 
but also individually as we consider how this revelation, what we've read so far and what we will read, is to impact us in the day-to-day. And I just want to encourage you as a family or individually or as you go out to lunch, consider these questions. Consider these questions. Consider the revelation that we've been given and what we know about the end of the story thus far and ask yourself, am I living in light of this? But for now, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for these verses that uh, really do set the tone uh, for who you are and how you are to be worshipped and for how you've revealed yourself uh, through your word uh, to give us guidance, to give us direction, to show us the hearts that we should have uh, as we approach uh, you, as we approach a life in you, and as we approach that day uh, that is coming that we will stand before you when every eye will see and every knee will bow. God, I pray that we uh, would be ready for that day. And I pray that if there is somebody in this room or watching online that is not ready, Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would reveal to them the weight of their sin and what it means in light of your coming. And that you will lead them to trust in your life, death, and resurrection by faith and reach out for the forgiveness and the grace that you offer. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us that, that your coming uh, would, would take its rightful weight in our lives. Show us how to do that by your spirit. Teach us by the helper that you have sent for us. We love you. We need you. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.